This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Monday to Friday, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. That's when you can check out Kelly and Company live, as you're doing now, I hope. And then at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, if you missed anything, we have our repeat of the day. Uh, that's also Monday to Friday, 5 p.m. Eastern, the repeat of Kelly and Company. In case you want to check something out or, you know, drag someone else to listen to the show because we talked about some awesome stuff, as we always do. Speaking of which, let's talk Know Your Rights. This is another Monday conversation uh, on our radar with Danielle McLaughlin. Let's examine questions that can't be answered by a simple yes or no. Join me, Danielle McLaughlin, when we talk about how freedoms collide on Know Your Rights. Danielle, uh, we sometimes have some offline conversations that lead to incredible subjects to be discussed on Know Your Rights. And today is a great example of that. Um, as you bring on a guest, can you give us some context? Yes, absolutely. Uh, last week, Ramya Kelly drew my attention to a news report about a landlord who was having difficulty evicting some undesirable tenants. However, in general, landlords have a lot more power and resources than tenants have. Today, we have a guest with us who will help us explore some of the issues that disabled people face in accommodation. Lee Webb is a lawyer and the Director of Client Services with CIRA, the Center for Equality Rights in Accommodation. And welcome to Kelly and Company, Lee. Thank you very much, Danielle. So glad you could join us. Can we start out just simply by asking you, what is CIRA and what does it do? Yeah, so the Center for Equality Rights in Accommodation is Canada's leading nonprofit organization working to advance the right to housing. And we've been doing this for the last 35 years. And we do this in a number of ways, including uh, providing services to renters to help them stay housed, providing education and training about housing rights, and advancing rights-based housing policy through research, policy development, advocacy, and litigation. Well, that's very important because I I know, having been a renter for most of my life, that um, there's a lot renters don't know that uh, even that they have rights. Um, I know that there are people who feel that they've been discriminated against in housing because of their disabilities specifically. What can these people do? Uh, if they feel like they've been uh, discriminated against. So every p- province and territory has human rights laws that protect people from mistreatment based on their unchangeable characteristics, like the color of their skin or whether they have a disability. And this can include things like being harassed based on that characteristic, but it can also include whether there's a rule or some part of a building that is keeping a tenant from enjoying their rights as a tenant, or indeed a condo owner keeping being kept from enjoying uh, their rights and responsibilities in the condo. For example, uh, sometimes the landlord will, will just issue notices in paper in, small, uh, in a small font, or maybe there's an uneven path or a step that makes it difficult for someone with an assistive device to travel over. So if one of your listeners is being discriminated against because of a disability, there are several things that they can do. 
Um, it's always good idea, a good idea to keep records of what's happening. And this could be like a journal or taking photos of something or audio or video recordings of, of what's going on. Uh, it would be a good idea to write to your landlord about the problems you're facing and ask for help to make a change. This could involve speaking with another tenant uh, that's harassing you um, or having the landlord change something about the rental uh, unit that's causing rental unit or, or complex that's causing a barrier. In some cases, maybe mediation is a good idea and where both sides can talk about their interests and how to resolve them. But, you know, that isn't going to work in, in all cases. But in any event, if the landlord is willing to help, then the process kind of is a two-way street and tenants should work with the reasonable requests of their landlords to make an accommodation work or to address a situation of harassment. But ultimately, the landlord does have this responsibility to make sure that the home uh, is and the rental complex are accessible and a safe place for people to live. And so then the tenant can normally, depending on the province, file a complaint with their provincial uh, human rights commission or tribunal. That's really important for people to understand. Now, you know, some of our listeners, um, instead of being tenants, happen to be landlords. Um, And we all know of stories where a landlord has a tenant who is really terrible to have in, in, in the building. How can landlords legally remove tenants that they no longer want to have in their uh, housing accommodations? So first, I'd like to preface this by saying that the Center for Equality, Rights and Accommodation, uh, we endorse a right to housing, which the Canadian government has committed to advancing in Canada. And it would mean that everybody in Canada should have affordable, adequate and accessible housing and that they shouldn't be evicted into homelessness uh, and should be able to live with dignity and safety, no matter their ability or, or who they are. Um, and then in terms of, of, you know, your question about the, the eviction process, it differs a lot from province to province. And I can really only speak about uh, what's happening in Ontario. But it's important to know that evictions can only be carried out by a court enforcement officer or also known as the sheriff. And that, has, that eviction has to be authorized by the landlord and tenant board. So for that to happen, first, the landlord has to give a tenant notice to end their tenancy. And for some evictions, the tenant may be able to avoid the eviction by addressing the landlord's complaints, like for unpaid rent or if something's gotten damaged. Otherwise, and, and if the, or if the tenant isn't able to address the complaint or the concern, then the process is that the landlord has to file an application with the landlord and tenant board. The board then holds a hearing, which both the landlord and the tenant need to be notified of, and both get a chance to plead their case. Uh, if the landlord is successful and the eviction order is made uh, by the board, uh, then the pro- that is enforced by the sheriff. However, this is a process that can take anywhere from uh, two months and uh, depending on delays at the landlord and tenant board can be over half a year if, if uh, things are, are slow. I've heard recently um, in the media that the uh, landlord-tenant tribunals are backlogged up to two years at this point, um, which can make things pretty dicey, both for tenants and for landlords, I would imagine. Um, is, I guess my, my question about that is, does either party need to have a lawyer when they go before the landlord-tenant board? Uh, neither party absolutely needs to have a, a lawyer. The landlord and tenant board is designed to be much more user-friendly than 
superior court and kind of the the criminal court process that we we see on television shows, for example. Um, but studies have shown that both uh, that parties that are represented do tend to fare better, and and that's we see that particularly with tenants who who um, very few of them end up being represented, but their outcomes end up being much better when when they are represented. I guess that's true with all tribunals and, and court levels. It's, you know, they say that if you represent yourself, you may have a fool <laughs> for a lawyer. So, yeah, yeah I, I think I've that, heard that one. Yes, always advisable, I, I think. Um, can you give us some examples of cases where uh, the Center for Equality Rights and Accommodation has represented disabled people in a dispute about their rights and accommodation? Sure. Now, uh, a lot of our work uh, doesn't make it to to a court or a tribunal, and we just negotiate uh, or or speak with a landlord on a tenant's behalf. And so, um, one of my cases, one of my examples is about that. So, most of the cases we receive relate to accommodation. A recent case that we had has involved a woman who had kept give uh, a woman with a a visual disability, a visual impairment who kept receiving notices on paper, even though she would ask her superintendent for them to be sent electronically. Uh, and so this was going on for some months, and then she came to CIRA, and we wrote to the landlord on her behalf and got the manager to uh, commit to sending documents electronically in a format that was going to be readable for this person. Now we're working with the, the person to ensure that their landlord lives up to their word on that. Uh, and, and we've given them some uh, uh, information about the process in case the landlord doesn't live up to their word, which is to uh, file an application at the Human Rights Tribunal. Um, in another case, uh, I represented a man, this was before my time at CIRA, but very similar to work that CIRA uh, gets involved with uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. I represented a man with psychosis who had received an eviction notice uh, on account of his threatening behavior. He was you know, gruff and, and being uh, very hostile towards the neighbors. So I was able to help in two ways. First, the landlord had made some mistakes on his eviction notice, which in Ontario meant that the t tenant couldn't be evicted based on that notice because it, it seemed to be like a, a unfair, a procedurally unfair. But I also was able to point out to the landlord, based on the landlord's own evidence, that my client's aggressive behavior only ever really happened when his neighbors made comments to him about his mental health, calling him crazy or, or whatever, and then he'd lash out. Uh, the landlord hadn't uh, taken that into account, but after I'd pointed that out to him, uh, the, the threats of eviction had stopped and, and I guess they found a way to, to work things out in a better, uh, in a better way. So that's real human to human, uh, uh, way of working, isn't it? Sometimes, you know, by spending a little time with somebody, you find out some details that you can use to make peace. I, I think that that sounds like a a really positive outcome for for that particular case. And the, the case of, of the woman who was just receiving notifications on paper, you, you'd think you wouldn't have to ask more than once, but um, I guess uh, that, that's pretty, you know, n not uncommon. The, the no, it's it's not uncommon. You know, it, 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 it's, it's not in every case. We, we certainly have cases where um, we're able to, on, on the kind of first instance, we're able to resolve someone's problem. But 
uh, either due to the processes that landlords have or, you know, their perception of how much something might cost. Uh, it does happen that we do have to get involved and, and send letters and, and just ensure that uh, everybody's kind of aware of the Human Rights Code and its requirements on, on both landlords and tenants. Very important information. You know, I have to say, I, it makes me chuckle to, to learn that the sheriff is the person who, um, you know, completes evictions because I don't think many people know that there's such a thing as a sheriff these days. You, you know, you think of the sheriff of Nottingham or, or in Westerns, <laughs> but but not so much a, a sheriff, you know, who's in, in an urban area, for example, or, or who actually has a specific job. Just is, is this all that the sheriff does is evictions or are there other other jobs that are, that are relegated to the sheriff? Uh I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding is, is basically the sheriff, their other title is the court enforcement officer. So any enforcement things that a court would order, like uh, of a writ or of a garnishment, um, the sheriff's office would be involved in that in some capacity. Okay. Well, that's, that certainly is interesting to, to, to know. I, I, you know, I have this vision of the, the sheriff with, with that, you know, five-pointed star on their chest, <laughs> but it's probably not quite that, that bad. Um, you, you've mentioned that, that CIRA has been around uh, for more than 30 years, uh, which is very impressive. Um, has your organization ever gone to the Supreme Court over cases, or have you ever uh, um, intervened in court cases at, at, uh, at, at, at uh, higher levels? We have. Uh, we've been involved in cases that have gone to the Court of Appeal of Ant- in Ontario related to the uh, y- the use of information to assess whether or not someone should be uh, able to rent an apartment. Sometimes uh, landlords will apply what's known as an income to rent ratio. And we were involved in, in a case that uh, ended up saying that using that ratio in a way that was... Uh, um, c- Using that ratio could be a discriminatory practice in certain cases because it doesn't take into effect, into account all of the other resources that someone who may be on social assistance has to ensure that they can still pay their rent. So uh, that that's something that we're quite proud of at Sarah. So being on social assistance is not a reason to deny somebody housing if you're a landlord. Is that correct? That's exactly correct. In fact, being on social assistance or, or public assistance of any kind is a protected ground related to housing under the Ontario Human Rights Code. And so, um, and, and we hear about these cases, you know, frequently where a tenant will call us up and say, as soon as my landlord or potential landlord heard that I was on ODSP, they said that they weren't going to rent to me. But that type of a practice isn't lawful in Ontario. Uh, really, the question is, is the person a good risk? Uh, and so landlords are allowed to look at credit history and uh, kind of rental references. And if they've asked for that, they can ask for some income information, but they have to apply all of that information uh, that they get in a non-discriminatory way. Very important uh, case that you've taken, and that's really good information for all of our listeners. Uh, you know, at, we have many people who need that sort of information, and we don't always have access to it. Thank you so much, Lee. I really appreciate your joining us this afternoon. You're very welcome. And uh, in case anybody has more uh, interest in this topic, 
um, they can check out our website, equalityrights.org, or the website of uh, the Community Legal Education Ontario, which is stepstojustice.ca. And we just want to make sure that listeners understand that they should speak to their communities and representatives about the right to housing and advancing it and learn about their rights in advance of a problem so that they know where to turn if, if they do run into trouble. Very helpful information. Thank you. That was my guest, Lee Webb, Director of Client Services from CIRA, the Centre for Equality Rights in Accommodation, talking with us today about disability rights in accommodation. Thanks, uh, Danielle. Thank you so much for this conversation. Appreciate it always. On Know Your Rights with Danielle McLaughlin, you can join us on Mondays for this conversation. We're taking a break, wrapping up our show, finding out what's coming up on tomorrow's edition of Now with Dave Brown, and I'll give you a preview of tomorrow's Kelly and Company episode as well. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.